Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. And what are you doing starting right in the middle of a story? Go back to part one. You'll seriously have no idea what's going on if you start here. We here at the Weird Tales Podcast are happy to have you here, and please know that you are welcome here regardless of race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. I got my computer back! It took a couple weeks longer than expected for reasons that were never made fully clear to me, but it works! It had to get a new battery, a new logic board, and a new trackpad, but it basically runs like a brand new computer now, and I'm super happy. Even the speakers seem louder to me, so if the recording sounds a little bit different, hopefully not worse, just different, it's because I'm still adjusting to the new stuff. Anyway, enough blather. Let's get on with the story. Four. What finally roused Zamakona was a thunderous rapping at the door. It beat through his dreams and dissolved all the lingering mists of drowsiness as soon as he knew what it was. There could be no mistake about it. It was a definite, human, and peremptory rapping, performed apparently with some metallic object and with all the measured quality of conscious thought or will behind it. As the awakening man rose clumsily to his feet, a sharp vocal note was added to the summons, someone calling out in a not unmusical voice a formula which the manuscript tries to represent as Ohi Ohi Gyakhan Yecharelex. Feeling sure that his visitors were men and not demons, and arguing that they could have no reason for considering him an enemy, Zamakona decided to face them openly and at once, and accordingly fumbled with the ancient latch till the golden door creaked open from the pressure of those outside. As the great portal swung back, Zamakona stood facing a group of about twenty individuals of an aspect not calculated to give him alarm. They seemed to be Indians, though their tasteful robes and trappings and swords were not such as he had seen among any of the tribes of the outer world, while their faces had many subtle differences from the Indian type. That they did not mean to be irresponsibly hostile was very clear, for instead of menacing him in any way, they merely probed him attentively and significantly with their eyes, as if they expected their gaze to open up some sort of communication. The longer they gazed, the more he seemed to know about them and their mission, for although no one had spoken since the vocal summons before the opening of the door, he found himself slowly realizing that they had come from the great city beyond the low hills, mounted on animals, and that they had been summoned by animals who had reported his presence. That they were not sure what kind of person he was or just where he had come from, but that they knew he must be associated with that dimly remembered outer world which they sometimes visited in curious dreams." How he read all this in the gaze of the two or three leaders he could not possibly explain, though he learned why a moment later. As it was, he attempted to address his visitors in the Wichita dialect he had picked up from Charging Buffalo, and after this failed to draw a vocal reply, he successively tried the Aztec, Spanish, French, and Latin tongues, adding as many scraps of lame Greek, Galician, and Portuguese, and of the babble peasant patois of his native Asturias, as his memory could recall. But not even this polyglot array, his entire linguistic stock, could bring a reply in kind. When, however, he paused in perplexity, one of the visitors began speaking in an utterly strange and rather fascinating language, whose sounds the Spaniard later had much difficulty in representing on paper. Upon his failure to understand this, the speaker pointed first to his own eyes, then to his forehead, 
and then to his eyes again, as if commanding the other to gaze at him in order to absorb what he wanted to transmit. Zamakona, obeying, found himself rapidly in possession of certain information. The people, he learned, converse nowadays by means of unvocal radiations of thought, although they had formerly used a spoken language which still survived as the written tongue and into which they still dropped orally for tradition's sake or when strong feeling demanded a spontaneous outlet. He could understand them merely by concentrating his attention upon their eyes and could reply by summoning up a mental image of what he wished to say and throwing the substance of this into his glance. When the thought speaker paused, apparently inviting a response, Zamakona tried his best to follow the prescribed pattern, but did not appear to succeed very well. So he nodded and tried to describe himself and his journey by signs. He pointed upward as if to the outer world, then closed his eyes and made signs as of a mole burrowing. Then he opened his eyes again and pointed downward in order to indicate his descent of the great slope. Experimentally, he blended a spoken word or two with his gestures, for example, pointing successively to himself and to all of his visitors and saying, Un hombre, and then pointing to himself alone and very carefully pronouncing his individual name, Panfilo de Zamacona. Before the strange conversation was over, a good deal of data had passed in both directions. Zamacona had begun to learn how to throw his thoughts and had likewise picked up several words of the region's archaic spoken language. His visitors, moreover, had absorbed many beginnings of an elementary Spanish vocabulary. Their own old language was utterly unlike anything the Spaniard had ever heard, though there were times later on when he was to fancy an infinitely remote linkage with the Aztec, as if the latter represented some far stage of corruption or some very thin infiltration of loanwords. The underground world, Zamacona learned, bore an ancient name which the manuscript records as Zinian, but which, from the writer's supplementary explanations and diacritical marks, could probably best be represented to Anglo-Saxon ears by the phonetic arrangement Kinyan. It is not surprising that this preliminary discourse did not go beyond the merest essentials, but those essentials were highly important. Zamakona learned that the people of Kinyan were almost infinitely ancient, and that they had come from a distant part of space, where physical conditions are much like those of the earth. All this, of course, was legend now, and one could not say how much truth was in it or how much worship was really due to the octopus-headed being Tulu, who had traditionally brought them hither and whom they still reverenced for aesthetic reasons. But they knew of the outer world and were indeed the original stock who had peopled it as soon as its crust was fit to live on. Between glacial ages, they had had some remarkable surface civilizations, especially one at the South Pole near the mountain Kadath. At some time, infinitely in the past, most of the outer world had sunk beneath the ocean, so that only a few refugees remained to bear the news to Kinyan. This was undoubtedly due to the wrath of space devils, hostile alike to men and to men's gods, for it bore out rumors of a primordially earlier sinking which had submerged the gods themselves, including great Tulu, who still lay prisoned and dreaming in the watery vaults of the half-cosmic city Relay. No man not a slave of the space devils, it was argued, could live long on the outer earth, and it was decided that all beings who remained there must be evilly connected. Accordingly, traffic with the lands of sun and starlight abruptly ceased. 
the subterraneous approaches to Kinyan, or such as could be remembered, were either blocked up or carefully guarded, and all encroachers were treated as dangerous spies and enemies. But this was long ago. With the passing of ages, fewer and fewer visitors came to Kinyan, and eventually sentries ceased to be maintained at the unblocked approaches. The mass of the people forgot, except through distorted memories and myths and some very singular dreams, that an outer world existed, though educated folk never ceased to recall the essential facts. The last visitors ever recorded, centuries in the past, had not even been treated as devil spies, faith in the old legendary having long before died out. They had been questioned eagerly about the fabulous outer regions, for scientific curiosity in Kinyan was keen, and the myths, memories, dreams, and historical fragments relating to the Earth's surface had often tempted scholars to the brink of an external expedition, which they had not quite dared to attempt. The only thing demanded of such visitors was that they refrain from going back and informing the outer world of Kinyan's positive existence, for after all, one could not be sure about these outer lands. They coveted gold and silver and might prove highly troublesome intruders. Those who had obeyed the injunction had lived happily, though regrettably briefly, and had told all they could about their world. Little enough, however, since their accounts were also fragmentary and conflicting that one could hardly tell what to believe and what to doubt. One wished that more of them would come. As for those who disobeyed and tried to escape, it was very unfortunate about them. Zamakona himself was very welcome, for he appeared to be a higher-grade man and to know much more about the outer world than anyone else who had come down within memory. He could tell them much, and they hoped he would be reconciled to his lifelong stay. Many things which Zamakona learned about Kinyan in the first colloquy left him quite breathless. He learned, for instance, that during the past few thousand years, the phenomena of old age and death had been conquered, so that men no longer grew feeble or died except through violence or will. By regulating the system, one might be as physiologically young and immortal as he wished, and the only reason why any allowed themselves to age was that they enjoyed the sensation in a world where stagnation and commonplaceness reigned. They could easily become young again when they felt like it. Births had ceased, except for experimental purposes, since a large population had been found needless by a master race which controlled nature and organic rivals alike. Many, however, chose to die after a while, since, despite the cleverest efforts to invent new pleasures, the ordeal of consciousness became too dull for sensitive souls, especially those in whom time and satiation had blinded the primal instincts and emotions of self-preservation. All the members of the group before Zamakona were from 500 to 1500 years old, and several had seen surface visitors before, though time had blurred the recollection. These visitors, by the way, had often tried to duplicate the longevity of the underground race, but had been able to do so only fractionally, owing to evolutionary differences developing during the million or two years of cleavage. These evolutionary differences were even more strikingly shown in another particular, one far stranger than the wonder of immortality itself. This was the ability of the people of Kinyan to regulate the balance between matter and abstract energy, even where the bodies of living organic beings were concerned by the sheer force of the technically trained will. In other words, with suitable effort, a learned man of Kinyan could dematerialize and rematerialize himself, 
or, with somewhat greater effort and subtler technique, any other object he chose, reducing solid matter to free external particles and recombining the particles again without damage. Had not Zamacona answered his visitor's knock when he did, he would have discovered this accomplishment in a highly puzzling way, for only the strain and bother of the process prevented the twenty men from passing bodily through the golden door without pausing for a summons. This art was much older than the art of perpetual life, and it could be taught to some extent, though never perfectly, to any intelligent person. Rumors of it had reached the outer world in past aeons, surviving in secret traditions and ghostly legendry. The men of Kinyan had been amused by the primitive and imperfect spirit tales brought down by outer-world stragglers. In practical life, this principle had certain industrial applications, but was generally suffered to remain neglected through lack of any particular incentive to its use. Its chief surviving form was in connection with sleep, when, for excitement's sake, many dream connoisseurs resorted to it to enhance the vividness of their visionary wanderings. By the aid of this method, certain dreamers even paid half-material visits to a strange nebulous realm of mounds and valleys and varying light, which some believed to be the forgotten outer world. They would go thither on their beasts and, in an age of peace, live over the old glorious battles of their forefathers. Some philosophers thought that in such cases they actually coalesced with immaterial forces left behind by these warlike ancestors themselves. The people of Kinyon all dwelt in the great tall city of Soth beyond the mountains. Formerly, several races of them had inhabited the entire underground world, which stretched down to unfathomable abysses and which included, beside the blue Litten region, a red Litten region called Yoth, where relics of a still older and non-human race were found by archaeologists. In the course of time, however, the men of Soth had conquered and enslaved the rest, interbreeding them with certain horned and four-footed animals of the Red Litten region, whose semi-human leanings were very peculiar, and which, though containing a certain artificially created element, may have been in part the degenerate descendants of those particular entities who had left the relics. As aeons passed and mechanical discoveries made the business of life extremely easy, a concentration of the people of Soth took place, so that all the rest of Kinyan became relatively deserted. It was easier to live in one place, and there was no object in maintaining a population of overflowing proportions. Many of the old mechanical devices were still in use, though others had been abandoned when it was seen that they failed to give pleasure or that they were not necessary for a race of reduced numbers whose mental force could govern an extensive array of inferior and semi-human industrial organisms. This extensive slave class was highly composite, being bred from ancient conquered enemies, from outer-world stragglers, from dead bodies curiously galvanized into effectiveness, and from the naturally inferior members of the ruling race of Soth. The ruling type itself had become highly superior through selective breeding and social evolution, the nation having passed through a period of idealistic industrial democracy which gave equal opportunities to all and thus, by raising the naturally intelligent to power, drained the masses of all their brains and stamina. Industry, being found fundamentally futile except for the supplying of basic needs and the gratification of inescapable yearnings, had become very simple. Physical comfort was ensured by an urban mechanization of standardized and easily maintained pattern, and other elemental needs were supplied by scientific agriculture and stock-raising. 
Long travel was abandoned, and people went back to using the horned half-human beasts instead of maintaining the profusion of gold, silver, and steel transportation machines which had once threaded land, water, and air. Zamakona could scarcely believe that such things had ever existed outside dreams, but was told he could see specimens of them in museums. He could also see the ruins of other vast magical devices by traveling a day's journey to the valley of Dohna, to which the race had spread during its period of greatest numbers. The cities and temples of this present plain were of a far more archaic period and had never been other than religious and antiquarian shrines during the supremacy of the men of Sath. In government, Sath was a kind of communistic or semi-anarchical state, habit rather than law determining the daily order of things. This was made possible by the age-old experience in paralyzing ennui of the race, whose wants and needs were limited to physical fundamentals and to new sensations. An aeon-long tolerance not yet undermined by growing reaction had abolished all illusions of values and principles, and nothing but an approximation to custom was ever sought or expected. To see that the mutual encroachments of pleasure-seeking never crippled the mass life of the community, this was all that was desired. Family organization had long ago perished, and the civil and social distinction of the sexes had disappeared. Daily life was organized in ceremonial patterns with games, intoxication, torture of slaves, daydreaming, gastronomic and emotional orgies, religious exercises, exotic experiments, artistic and philosophical discussions, and the like as the principal occupations. Property, chiefly land, slaves, animals, shares in the common city enterprise of Soth, and ingots of magnetic Tulu metal, the former universal money standard, was allocated on a very complex basis which included a certain amount equally divided among all the free men. Poverty was unknown and labor consisted only of certain administrative duties imposed by an intricate system of testing and selection. Zamakona found difficulty in describing conditions so unlike anything he had previously known, and the text of his manuscript proved unusually puzzling at this point. Art and intellect, it appeared, had reached very high levels in Soth, but had become listless and decadent. The dominance of machinery had at one time broken up the growth of normal aesthetics, introducing a lifelessly geometrical tradition fatal to sound expression. This had soon been outgrown, but had left its mark upon all pictorial and decorative attempts, so that, except for conventionalized religious designs, there was little depth or feeling in any later work. Archaistic reproductions of earlier work had been found much preferable for general enjoyment. Literature was all highly individual and analytical, so much so as to be wholly incomprehensible to Zamakona. Science had been profound and accurate, and all-embracing, save in the one direction of astronomy. Of late, however, it was falling into decay, as people found it increasingly useless to tax their minds by recalling its maddening infinitude of details and ramifications. It was thought more sensible to abandon the deepest speculations and to confine philosophy to conventional forms. Technology, of course, could be carried on by rule of thumb. History was more and more neglected, but exact and copious chronicles of the past existed in the libraries. It was still an interesting subject, and there would be a vast number to rejoice at the fresh outer-world knowledge brought in by Zamakona. In general, though, the modern tendency was to feel rather than to think, 
so that men were now more highly esteemed for inventing new diversions than for preserving old facts or pushing back the frontier of cosmic mystery. Religion was a leading interest in Soth, though very few actually believed in the supernatural. What was desired was the aesthetic and emotional exaltation bred by the mystical moods and sensuous rites which attended the colorful ancestral faith. Temples to Great Tulu, a spirit of universal harmony anciently symbolized as the octopus-headed god who had brought all men down from the stars, were the most richly constructed objects in all Kinyan, while the cryptic shrines of Yig, the principle of life symbolized as the father of all serpents, were almost as lavish and remarkable. In time, Zamakona learned much of the orgies and sacrifices connected with this religion, but seemed piously reluctant to describe them in his manuscript. He himself never participated in any of the rites, save those which he mistook for perversions of his own faith, nor did he ever lose an opportunity to try to convert the people to that faith of the cross which the Spaniards hoped to make universal. Prominent in the contemporary religion of Saf was a revival and almost genuine veneration for the rare sacred metal of Tulu, that dark, lustrous, magnetic stuff which was nowhere found in nature, but which had always been with men in the form of idols and hieratic implements. From the earliest times, any sight of it in its unalloyed form had impelled respect, while all the sacred archives and litanies were kept in cylinders wrought of its purest substance. Now, as the neglect of science and intellect was dulling the critically analytical spirit, people were beginning to weave around the metal once more that same fabric of awestruck superstition which had existed in primitive times. Another function of religion was the regulation of the calendar, born of a period when time and speed were regarded as prime fetishes in man's emotional life. Periods of alternate waking and sleeping, prolonged, abridged, and inverted as mood and convenience dictated, and timed by the tail-beats of great Yig, the serpent, corresponded very roughly to terrestrial days and nights, though Zamakona's sensations told him that they must actually be almost twice as long. The year unit, measured by Yig's annual shedding of his skin, was equal to about a year and a half of the outer world. Zamakona thought he had mastered this calendar very well when he wrote his manuscript, whence the confidently given date of 1545, but the document failed to suggest that his assurance in this matter was fully justified. As the spokesman of the Soth party proceeded with his information, Zamakona felt a growing repulsion and alarm. It was not only what was told, but the strange telepathic manner of telling and the plain inference that return to the outer world would be impossible that made the Spaniard wish he had never descended to this region of magic, abnormality, and decadence. But he knew that nothing but friendly acquiescence would do as a policy, hence decided to cooperate in all his visitors' plans and furnish all the information they might desire. They, on their part, were fascinated by the outer world data which he managed haltingly to convey. It was really the first draft of reliable surface information that they had had since the refugees straggled back from Atlantis and Lemuria aeons before, for all their subsequent emissaries from outside had been members of narrow and local groups without any knowledge of the world at large, Mayas, Toltecs, and Aztecs at best, and mostly ignorant tribes of the plains. Zamakono was the first European they had ever seen, and the fact that he was a youth of education and brilliancy made him of still more emphatic value as a source of knowledge. 
The visiting party showed their breathless interest in all he contrived to convey, and it was plain that his coming would do much to relieve the flagging interest of weary Soth in matters of geography and history. The only thing which seemed to displease the men of Soth was the fact that curious and adventurous strangers were beginning to pour into those parts of the upper world where the passages to Kinyon lay. Zamacona told them of the founding of Florida and New Spain and made it clear that a great part of the world was stirring with the zest of adventure, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and English. Sooner or later, Mexico and Florida must meet in one great colonial empire, and then it would be hard to keep outsiders from the rumored gold and silver of the abyss. Charging Buffalo knew of Zamacona's journey into the earth. Would he tell Coronado or somehow let a report get to the great viceroy when he failed to find the traveler at the promised meeting place? Alarm for the continued secrecy and safety of Quinon showed in the faces of the visitors, and Zamacona absorbed from their minds the fact that from now on, sentries would undoubtedly be posted once more at all the unblocked passages to the outside world which the men of Soth could remember. And that was part four of The Mound by Zelia Bishop and H.P. Lovecraft. We're about halfway through, and then we'll figure out where we're going from there. I actually have a kind of a sort of idea of what I want to do next, but I'm not sure how well it'll fly. I'll bounce the idea off my wife. She's got a pretty good head on her shoulders. If you enjoy my reading and want to commission me to read something or voice act something or whatever, I'd love to help out. You can email me at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com and we'll discuss details. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can throw some love at me on Patreon. My wonderful, amazing Patreon supporters are what got my computer repaired, and without their support, I don't know what I would be doing right now. Thank you all so much, and for those of you who upped your Patreon support to help out, thank you so much. And if you want to drop it back down to where it was before, I have no problem with you doing so. Thank you all so much for your help. Stephen McKay, thank you so much. Damon Bowles, thank you. Marco Van Putin, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to all of you. That'll about wrap it up for this week. Thank you for listening, and please, 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 please go and get vaccinated if you haven't. Go and get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Wear a mask, even if you are vaccinated. Punch a racist in the face, and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. I'll see you next time.